This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. Hope that you are all doing well. You know, I was just thinking, I know this probably sounds like just really silly, but I was watching the video, the entry, the, you know, the, the introduction video there, and I was just thinking, wow, we've been like watching that for a while now, and I don't get tired of it. And that's so, anyhow, good job, team. All right, well, hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. You know, as we were in worship this morning, uh, you know, I did something that I do every so often. I just sometimes just feel the need to turn around and like watch and just think about the perspective of the Father, like the joy of the Father in everybody worshiping and gathered together. So I just want to tell you, when I turned around and looked across the room, I was just, what a huge blessing that was. I just believing that you were touching the heart of the Father this morning. I hope that blesses you as well. Well, my name is Hal Hester. Welcome to Vine Life. Over the last couple of months, we've been in this series in the Gospel of John about eternal life. And uh, we've, if you've not been with us, uh, let me just catch you up to speed a little bit in the simple fact that the reason we call the series Eternal Life is simply because that is the overarching theme of the Gospel of John. Now, there are several sub-themes that are very important, and we're going to touch along, uh, on several of those along the way. Uh, in particular, this week, uh, we're going to be looking uh, specifically at what he's saying about uh, the Good Shepherd. We talked about that some last week. We're building on that a little bit today as we continue in the uh, following context uh, at the Feast of Dedication and looking at some things that Jesus says about himself, about he and the Father being one. Also, very important theme. But uh, undergirding all of this, that, li- that theme of eternal life, uh, is deeply rooted in a couple of things. One is that throughout the book, when it was originally written in Greek, Uh, Instead of using the word bios, from which we get the term biology to refer to physical life, uh, instead the word for life that occurs over and over and over again is either rooted in the word sozo or zoe, referring to a quality of life, a, a, a sense of expectation, a transcendent sense of life that means that life is is bigger than just simply our physical existence, but the expectation of God at work in us and through us. Several times through the text, it also refers to eternal life uh, or abundant life. And again, these same concepts running all through it to give us this sense of that what the ideal is, is not that you and I someday getting into heaven, but more importantly, that you and I would get heaven into us, that we would allow the Holy Spirit to work in us so that the eternal is expressed in the here and now, and that not only would we experience that abundant life, but it would spill into the lives of others and point them toward eternity. So like I said, today we are uh, focusing in on uh, this context of where Jesus talks about he and the Father being one. It so happens that uh, like in the first half of the chapter last week, uh, we, were, we were kind of at the end of his time uh, at the festival of um, the Harvest Festival, And now we're moving into just within a couple of verses right there. You're going to see uh, very subtle that there's a transition uh, to the Feast of Dedication. Now, it's still the same context in that uh, he's going to be referencing some of the same things about being the Good Shepherd and things like that. But it is uh, significant in that several weeks have passed uh, going from the Feast of of Booths to the Feast of Dedication. Uh, the Feast of Dedication, you most commonly know as Hanukkah, right? You know, uh, Hanukkah always, you think in terms of like right around Christmas time. And so like in just a matter of sentences, just like real life, you know, like in the blink of an eye, you've gone from Halloween to Christmas, right? Isn't that the way it happens? You know, one moment you're bobbing for apples, the next moment you're putting up a tree, you know? And so uh, look, it happens that way in the verse there. Now, While the text is not clear if Jesus left Jerusalem in between the two festivals or if he stayed in Jerusalem all during that time, it doesn't say. uh, In the setting, all we know is we have gone from September to December just that quick. and, And it doesn't say a whole lot about anything happening in between. 
my best guess, they were all home watching football. Okay, maybe not, but uh, still this imagery of the shepherd is being employed and will carry over as we read today. Uh, you'll see it there, but we're going to be in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22 this morning, John 10, beginning in verse 22, and if you're using a phone or tablet, please do me a favor and set that to silent for your sake and for the sake of those around you. I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version, but please follow along whatever translation you have, the one in your lap always my favorite. Let's take a look. John 10, 22, and we read these words. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given, to the me, given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones to, again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Please Make note of that in the text. Jesus answered them, It is not written in your law, I said you were gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you were blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many people came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. So as I said, they, they're at this festival celebrating Hanukkah. It's a week-long festival, uh, and the festival's uh, very nationalistically charged. Uh, if you want to think of a, a, a similar context for you and I, I want you to think about Independence Day. See, in terms of the festival, if you are not familiar with what Hanukkah is all about, uh, Hanukkah was a time of uh, consecrating the temple uh, after they overthrew the rule of a Syrian despot by the name of Antiochus. And Antiochus declared himself to be Epiphanes, that is, the appearing of the gods. He declared himself to be the son of God and a god himself, and so, uh, you know, this, and to be the very incarnation of the gods in the flesh. God's plural in his case, but nonetheless, you get the idea. Uh, he was declaring himself to be a god, and he was regularly defiling the temple. Brief, brief overview of history. You can look this stuff up later if you want to know more about it. But uh, Alexander the Great, many of you have heard of Alexander the Great. Uh, when he conquered most of the known world at the time, uh, spreading the Greek empire, uh, he was actually himself a Macedonian, not a Greek. Uh, but he believed in Greek culture. He wanted to Hellenize the world. He thought the whole world would be a better place if it had Greek culture, Greek art, the Greek gods, etc., etc. And um, 
at the height of his reign, his father, Philip, Macedo, uh, Philip II, uh, had started it. Alexander the Great continued it, conquered all of that. Uh, only had some small children at the time when he passed away. And so his four generals murdered his child that was his successor, and they divided his kingdom into four parts. One of them, in the northeast quadrant, was the Syrian Empire, and uh, Antiochus, uh, generations later, wanted to recreate the great empire of Alexander uh, the Great, and so uh, he was regularly going to war with the other three quadrants of the empire. One of his favorite places to go to war with was the southwest corner. I don't know why in particular, but that's uh, included Egypt. And so regularly on his way through to Egypt, he would stop in Jerusalem and just wreak havoc on the Jews. He hated the Jews. He hated that this temple was still standing. He didn't like that Alexander had left it intact. There's a long uh, history and explanation for that, uh, having to do with uh, references to uh, Daniel and things like that, uh, that that were part of the conversation that we just don't have time to cover today. But nonetheless, on his way through, he would regularly wreak havoc on the temple. And one of the things that he did was he went in to... stole everything from the temple, including like the seal of David that he later lost down in Egypt and wasn't found again until the 1950s. Uh, Kind of an interesting thing because that's how we first knew that David was not mythical, but an actual person in history was when we found that in the 1950s. Most of everything we've ever, and well, let me rephrase that. Everything that we've ever learned about King David in terms of finding things physically have happened since 1950, which just shows you how archaeology can be really helpful even in the modern day. There's some things we know about history better today than we knew a thousand years ago even. Nonetheless, uh, in the the context of that, uh, eventually the people rose up against him. He had put a statue of Zeus in the temple, would regularly offer pig's flesh on the altar to defile the altar so that the Jews wouldn't use it to worship Yahweh. And in his uh, efforts to try to destroy uh, everything that God was doing, uh, they eventually overthrew him, and then Hanukkah was where they finally got control of the temple, and they had only enough oil for one day, but they lit the oil, and it burned for seven days while they were making fresh oil to represent the presence of God. And so the presence of God was there miraculously, supernaturally, through the oil burning for the, the entire week uh, while they were making some fresh oil. So uh, nonetheless, uh, uh, this uh, interesting history there. And the people who overthrew him, were the, a family called the Maccabees. They, wrote, they got everybody stirred up. Uh, if you want to read some interesting history sometime, the intertestamental books, uh, especially if you have uh, an older uh, King James Bible uh, when they still included those books, uh, or if you get like a Catholic Bible, an Anglican Bible, an Orthodox Bible, and there's the books uh, of 1st or 2nd Maccabees that record that time period. Actually, there's 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Maccabees, but most only have 1st and 2nd Maccabees for a number of reasons um, that I won't explain right now. But nonetheless, uh, that history there. And so when the Maccabees fought against uh, Antiochus and his armies and overthrew them, they started celebrating Hanukkah as a way to commemorate how God had worked through this ragtag army and overthrown a powerful army. Does that sound like, do you see why I'm making the parallel between that and Independence Day? You know, like, any similarities? Just a few, you know, just, just a few. And so you think about our nationalism, our heritage. When, when we get to Fourth of July, right? In fact, when I lived in Canada for a while, we were church planning in Canada, and on Canada Day, if you heard like a whole bunch of fireworks and people going crazy and they had a Canadian flags everywhere, do you know what all my neighbors said? Must be an American. Because they didn't care. Yeah, it, just, it was like nobody cared. Nobody put a flag up. And I was like, I mean, it's like it's Independence Day. It's your big day, right? You know, and they're like, nah, 
They didn't care. They said, got to be either a Brit or an American, you know, every time. So we, we love our 4th of July, right? We have this big, fa- well, that's what this was like. This was them celebrating their freedom from the despot. Now, it was marred by the fact that the Romans are oppressing them. So imagine 4th of July, but the Chinese army is occupying the land. Not that I'm accusing the Chinese, understand? I'm just saying, you know, like, I want you to relate to something you could imagine. And so imagine that we're so. We, you're looking back, but your freedom is gone. Can you imagine how politically charged that moment might be as you're trying to maintain your independence and thinking about all these things? And, and so uh, it, it, is, it is not just a... Uh, a political festival, but it's also it's a religious festival for them. And so there's this deep intertwining of their faith and public life that's represented in this day. Lots of religious fervor, lots of patriotic fervor, deeply interwoven. Like I said, think like our Independence Day and how we respond in the United States. So Jesus stands up to teach in the temple area. And I want you to just kind of imagine how the air is thick with expectation. Jesus has been preaching and teaching. There is rumor going round. I think this guy's the Messiah. He's certainly been doing signs and wonders that have provoked uh, uh, all kinds of expectation. The crowd, of course, it's... It's Independence Day, you know, and so the crowd is primed for a fight. Like I said, you know, just think like the United States, you know, probably had a few too many beers or whatever. Anyhow, either with Rome or with each other, they're they're ready for a fight. And in that mix, Jesus stands up to speak and they challenge Jesus. Tell us plainly, are you the Christ See, if Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah in their minds, what they wanted him to do in that moment was drop the hammer on the Romans. This would be a great day, right? I mean, like, we are already celebrating. Now, you know what would be great is if today the War of Independence broke out again and you would just drop the hammer on the Romans. Let's be done with this. If you're it, like, tell us plainly. Like, let's get to it. Can you imagine the fervor, the excitement, the fear, the oppression all in the air? Man, it was just a political hot mess. It's a religious hot mess. You can feel it in the air. It's thick. But also what they're saying is, and if you're not it, would you just stop teasing and get out, quit doing miracles. Like, just get out of the way, dude. I mean, like, one way or another, tell us what's going on. And I love Jesus' response. He's just like, I, I already told you. You're not listening. Because you don't want to hear what I'm actually saying, you, what you want to hear is not what you're going to hear. I, I am telling you, I've told you plainly, and the miracles I'm doing ought to make everything clear to you. And yet, the problem is, you're not listening. You and I could even say, in fact, the disciples aren't listening, right? They've been walking with him continually. Uh, we're over two years into the conversation of him discipling them, And they're still waiting for him to do something politically. They're still waiting for Israel to rise up as a military power and defeat the Romans. And so they can't hear what he's saying. That it's not the kingdom of God versus the world. It's the kingdom of God for the world. But they can't hear that. And so he points to the things that ought to be the obvious. But they miss it. You know, it's one of the things I think is 
always one of those things where you and I need to be kind of on our guard too, like that in our fervor for what we think, believe, or even in our own interpretations, just a gentle reminder, but a, but a serious reminder. It is the word of God that is inspired, not my interpretation or yours. I, I just think that's so critical because sometimes we get wrapped around the axle over things in the way we interpret and then when someone doesn't agree with us, we're quick to like divide, denominate ourselves off from one another and become so divided that we lose that witness that John was talking about that this morning, Jason Kayla was talking about that the Bible talks about is that in your love for one another, the world will know that you are my disciples. That is the only test that the world is given. How do we love one another? And if you don't do that, everything else you do, they will be tone deaf. And for good reason. Hello? Please don't let your interpretation get in the way. So in keeping with this, this spirit of Hanukkah, um, Jesus points out to their love of this extra-biblical festival. Remember, this is... The only time it's mentioned in the Bible is in the New Testament. It's not in the Old Testament. And so, uh, and, and that's another reason why, just be careful about getting wrapped around the axle on festivals. You know, like when I hear people say, well, Christian festivals aren't as important and they want to celebrate Hanukkah on equal footing with other things in the Old Testament, but they think that like celebrating, you know, like say the resurrection is questionable can I just point out, it's not actually in your Bible. Not in the Old Testament to keep Hanukkah. So don't get wrapped around the axle about stuff like that, please. But Jesus points to this love of this extra-biblical festival and to their love of the Maccabees, right? They're just they're heroes of the faith. And, they rem and he reminds them that they honor the Maccabees because of their good works. And so he asked the question, based on that, he, despite his own good works, how is it that you have no idea who I am, and why are you ready to kill me? And so begins the battle of interpretations. I kind of imagine like almost, you know, if it was modern day, I wonder if it would be like a rap battle or something. I, I, I'm kidding. Okay. Like two people chuckled. Never mind. It was funny. I just, okay, I'm just informing you if you didn't. Um, <clears throat> But they say, we're not going to kill you because of your good works. That's not why we're going to kill you. We're going to kill you because you claim to be God. Now, remember I asked you, I said, when you're going through that, please make a note of what happened there. Now, right here, in, in, in you know, like the, the Watchtower cult or Muslims, you know, trying to tell you that Jesus was just a man and that he never claimed to be God. I just want to point out to you, the Jews clearly understood what Jesus said and what he meant, and they were ready to kill him for it. They clearly understood. You and I need to clearly understand. Jesus has made it very clear that he's God in the flesh. He's done it over and over again all throughout the book of John. John written all throughout John. It comes up again and again. But just one more time, piled on, they clearly understood Jesus and they were going to kill him for it. But as we have noticed repeatedly, it wasn't his time yet, right? Look at verse 34, you know. And so uh, Jesus is pointing out the inconsistency here of Jewish interpretation in that they allowed Israel as a nation to be called the sons of God. And Moses was said to have been like God to Pharaoh. Actually, the way it says it very literally in the Hebrew is that Moses was God to Pharaoh and how he brought judgment on the nation, how he spoke. And then there are other times as you go through the judges, it will... Again, use this kind of language of where they've been like gods. 
But Jesus quotes Psalm 82, verse 6. Now, when he quotes it, he's quoting it out of context. Purposefully. Now, if you look at all of Psalm 82, the events around it is that there are Gentile leaders calling themselves gods. Think about Antiochus Epiphanes. He's not the first person. He won't be the last. The Roman Caesars eventually began to call themselves gods. And even like the the direct reference in Revelation, the 666 being a human number, is where you just add up the Roman numerals, which are the... Alpha, from the alphabet, right? And it adds up to 666 where it declares that he's the son of God. And so it's contradicting. He's saying, look, you know, they say they're gods, but they're just men. It is a mortal number, 666. That, those, the letters there add up to something mortal. And so uh, here in Psalm 82, 6, when he's quoting this out of context and, and stuff, the, the, the whole point is the Gentile leaders are calling themselves gods And then God responds by telling the people of Israel that they instead would be like God over the Gentile kings. They would wreak judgment. They would wreak havoc. They would have dominion over them. And so Jesus kind of quotes this out of context saying, uh, and I said, that is Elohim said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. And so he just kind of lifts it out of its context intentionally being somewhat coy. One of the things I love, you know, that is that throughout Scripture, there's a lot of use of tongue-in-cheek. Paul is very good at tongue-in-cheek. He often will quote his enemies, and so people get a little confused sometimes because it doesn't, isn't as clear in English as it is in the Greek uh, originally uh, and the way it's uh, stated. But nonetheless, uh, Paul regularly will quote his enemies Uh, and then answer them. And so that's the way you make sense of it. You go, oh, wait a minute. He says this here, but then he contradicts. And then as you follow the text, you realize, no, it's all a contradiction. You don't want to take that out of context back here and miss everything else he said down there, right? You have to follow the line of reasoning and argument. That's why it's really important. Don't lift verses out of their context and use them in such a way, you know, I can do all things through a verse that Gives me permission. Okay, so um, so Jesus is being a little coy because we know from the rest of the context, he's clearly telling them, I am. But he's not done yet. And so he redirects them to avoid their snare. He just kind of like uses their own interpretation against them. Uh, You know, it's not that he's saying that their interpretation is right. He's actually just showing them the inconsistency of with which they are making their arguments and going back and forth. And and so, uh, you know, kind of uh, very typical of Jesus, uh, you know, at this point is he's answering, but he's not answering, right? I already told you. Now, why did he just say, yes, yes, I am the Messiah. Look at the signs and wonders I've been doing. He doesn't say that, though, does he? He goes, he goes I, I've already answered you. I've already proved to you. Look at the, look at the things I'm doing. Uh, you already have an answer. You just don't want to listen. <clears throat> if, you're a, if you're a Pharisee at that moment, if you're one of the people that are at, arguing with him and you want to put him to death for claiming to be the Son of God or claiming to be the prophet or whatever else, and like you're looking for that like signature stick, just say it so we can kill you. You're like ruining my whole week. And he answers them just very coy. I, I just, I get a kick out of it. Um, I really do. But anyhow, uh, uh, so, but make no mistake, he was making a clear connection between himself and the Father because he says it again, I and the Father are one. And that's why they picked up stones to kill him. They knew full well what Jesus meant. But like I said, it wasn't his time. Right? He still got that, he still got those last few months uh, where he needs to train and prepare uh, the disciples. Uh, they've got they're they're in the home stretch, but it's also one third of all the time he has with them to disciple them. 
So here we are in December. We've got to get back to next April. We've still got just a little over a year to go. And, and as you read about the disciples at this point, and you listen to the things that they say, Versus what you read in the book of Acts, you know they needed every bit of it, right? I mean, like, like you read actually even where Jesus is being arrested finally and being taken to be crucified, and you real, you're like, like going, are these guys ready? Like, you know, I mean, if you're thinking in that, you're like reading, you're going, I don't think they're ready. I don't know, like, you know, and it will take those cataclysmic events at the end to finally prepare them. Do you do know sometimes God uses really cataclysmic events in our lives to prepare us for what's next, right? Hello? So he's just evasive enough to frustrate them. They're, they're clearly escalating, and he's escalating with them, but not enough to let them go after him so he can continue to share the message, continue to prepare the disciples. And that event concluded in much the same way as we saw last Sunday. The common theme uh, we've seen throughout this biography is that the people were divided. Some are believing Jesus to be the Messiah. They're ready. They, they want him. They're, they're, they're almost ready to take him by force, and he even has to evade them. Others rejecting him, and, the, and then the religious leaders looking for a way to arrest him, looking for a way to do him in, which they will eventually get to do, in the fullness of time, right? It's not that he's not going to let them. And in fact, if you want, I would suggest, and it's just a suggestion, but you know the old phrase, poking the bear? I, I think Jesus is poking the bear, to be quite honest. I, he like sets it up and he like tells them just enough that they can't do it right now, but they'll they're getting madder all the time, you know? And so when it finally comes to that moment, even though Nicodemus and others will try to inject reason in the final moment and go, whoa, we don't do this. This is not how our laws work. This is not how we govern. This is not what is right. This is not what is just. They go, basically, shut up. We are going to do this, whether Rome's on our side or not, right? They get at the end, and they're so furious that they do it, but not until Jesus lays down his life. Wow, the tension of all of this. Can you imagine just how, um, what an incredible and tumultuous time it must have been? But what John is trying to drive home, the Apostle John, in writing all these things, was that the real battle in that context, sadly enough, was not between the traditional forces of good and evil, like you and I would think. It's not angels and demons, although they're there in the background. But that would be a whole lot cleaner and simpler if you can just blame it on that, right? I mean, like when you can see that, you know, uh, that the enemy is at work, it's really easy to be dismissive or lump people in camps and things like that. In fact, it's one of the dangers for us spiritually that we would lump people into camps and forget that we have been called to the whole world, not just to those who agree with us. Anybody struggle with that? Like, you know, don't raise your hand, but, you know. Here in the Gospel of John, one of the things that's intriguing is the other three Gospels regularly have the casting out of demons. There's lots of direct spiritual warfare. Not in John. Not a single example. I don't think that's dismissive. I think it's important because he's pointing out to the simple fact that how spiritual warfare is at work in the world and how we usually see it, not in terms of angels and demons, but where we begin to blame people and groups and things. And we forget that everything, everything is spiritual. That you, you are an eternal being. And that you and I, and what we do isn't just what happens in our lives in the world right now or in the present, 
like there are reverberating effects, like the, the, the wings of the butterfly, that, and you read all that whole kind of the butterfly effect of the wings of the butterfly affecting things far beyond uh, our ability to see or understand and, and uh, you know, how the rules of physics work. Guess what? Your life, your witness, your testimony, both those things that you do to the glory of God and those things that you do that disgrace Him, have far-flung effects. We are spiritual beings, and those effects of our life are, are huge, far beyond your scope. We, we cannot realistically say, if we're followers of Christ, well, what I did doesn't affect anybody. That is a lie out of the pit of hell. That is a lie that will lead you into some really dangerous thinking. I should always be thinking that I am a spiritual being and what I do really does impact and affect people in the world. And so it's always a lot cleaner and easier if you can blame that, but, but here it, it's the, the obvious is the evil that lurks in the heart of men, even religious people, who in this moment will do a great evil in order to maintain control. And where God, knowing the hearts of men, will use their free will to end that stranglehold of Satan and of religion to set people free and eventually to impart eternal life. But it will be through their agency. Supposedly doing good things. Supposedly protecting. Supposedly upholding. Might it always be important for you and I to check ourselves before the Lord? Because when you walk with Jesus any amount of time, you know that life is full of both, right? It's full of times where there is obvious spiritual warfare going on, and then there are those less obvious times, those times of nuance in, in which you realize that you're not exactly sure whose side they're on. Sometimes you even wonder whose side you're on. I'm mindful that even in the Old Testament, right, that one of the things that, that catches my attention is when Joshua was raising up Israel and the angel of the Lord appears to him and he asks him, whose side are you on, our side or their side? And the angel answers him and says, neither. I'm on the Lord's side. Man, that ought to be a heart check right there, right? I mean, you know, if, if Israel could not be on the Lord's side in that moment. Hello? All right, well, okay, so, um, so here they, 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 they're justifying the outcome, a good thing despite the great evil it takes to get there, lying, manipulation, deceit, even murder is often justified in the, ends, in the minds of men to obtain certain outcomes that we deem as better. Sometimes it's small scale, other times it's on a grand scale, but evil is no less evil even if our intent is good. The ends does not justify the means. And that's not a new development. That's always been an underlying issue with the people of God, that we make sure that we are doing God's things in God's way and not doing things with a view toward a better end, but willing to do evil to get there. That one's for free. Anyhow, as a side note, when that happens... And God uses it for his purpose, like even when people do evil things and God uses it for his purpose because God has a way of working all things together for the good of those who love him, make sure you do not trick yourself into believing that your behavior was justified by God. Hello? You know, I mean, like Judas, Caiaphas, and Pilate did not escape judgment for their actions. It was good that Jesus went to the cross what they did was still wrong and sinful, right? But they did it of their own free will. So it, even if God uses something that you did that was wicked evil and he uses it for good, like don't pat yourself on the back and go, well, God and I, you know, we, we're like this. You know, you know, confess your sin, but don't try to rationalize it. All right, well, other interesting thing to note here. Can I please draw your attention to the witness of John the Baptist in the end there? 
Remember that the Gospel of John begins with John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Then we saw how some of you know, the baptizer's struggles, right, where uh, his, some of his disciples are, are feeling uh, put out, they're upset because they're not getting the attention that Jesus is getting anymore. Uh, there's also the part where John is in prison and... Um, and he's, you know, he's like asking the question, like, um, so I was sent to announce that you were coming. So is it you or should we be looking for somebody else? Because I don't know if you've noticed, I'm rotting in jail. Hello? And I just thought, you know, cousin, uh, maybe you would do something. And instead he sends them back with a quote from Isaiah about the captives being set free. Not exactly the context he was hoping for the use of that passage because he follows it up with how are the captives set free? The blind see, the lame walk, and the poor hear the good news. The captivity was not the captivity that John was expecting. John was hoping that meant he got out of prison. Not that his testimony seemed to end there. John brings us back long after the death of John the Baptist. And in the middle of that, we understand clearly that the baptizer's personal questions did not interfere with or disrupt his work. That even years after John's death, the fruit of his work was still resulting in people following Jesus. And what they were saying after his death was that what everything that John told us about this man is true. They're still lauding, they're still receiving Jesus on the basis of the testimony of John so that even after he's long dead and gone, the testimony of Jesus is still preparing the way of the Lord. It's still leveling out the hills. It's still filling in the valleys. The word, the testimony of John is still powerful. And listen, and he even notes this, even his lack of signs and wonders personally did not keep, keep people from believing in the signs that Jesus did. And when you point to the signs and wonders of Jesus, they don't lack power even if you do. Hello? I have confidence that God will work through me in those miracles too, but I am also confident that the signs and wonders or not, God can speak through me to make disciples for Jesus. God bore witness to Jesus even when John the Baptist struggled with his own personal doubts, did not understand what he was going through or why the trials that he faced, and yet God still bore witness through John the Baptist even when he didn't understand everything about the kingdom of God. Can I just remind you? You know, there's often this, this like misnomer that you know, I haven't been to Bible college, or I haven't done this, or I don't know enough. And I just want to point out to you that like John the Baptist, full of the Holy Spirit, just pointed the way to Jesus. He didn't know all that was coming. He didn't understand fully everything that was to be in that. Uh, by his own admission, he was confused about some things. Uh, he had struggles emotionally, spiritually uh, with all of this. Uh, things did not end well uh, in terms of his own expectations. And yet it was that proclamation that continued to reverberate, to bear witness even after he was dead. Can I just remind you that no matter how weak you are, no matter how little you think you know, no matter whether your walk with the Lord is completely above reproach or even if you struggle. Like there's a world out there that is dying apart from Jesus. And they need your testimony. They need you to be the hands, the feet, the words of Jesus. You don't have to be the best orator. You don't have to be the most holy. You don't have to be the most skilled. You can even have doubts. And God can use you if you will let him. That's my invitation to you.
point the way and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen? Well, like you said, there's no clock up there, so I have no idea how long I've been speaking, so let's stand together. Hey, looky there, I'm doing all right. Yeah, actually, I'm doing good. Y'all sit down. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. One, just look, if you are wrestling with spiritual warfare, especially that which is less than obvious, I mean, I I can't emphasize that enough. Everything is spiritual, right? And so uh, sometimes it's just not obvious. There doesn't have to be a demon behind every bush in order for it to be spiritual warfare. It may be something that's going deep in your own spirit. It could be something that's going on deep in the spirit and the life of other people that you're interacting with. And, and there could be things at stake that you don't even really fully understand. And so uh, it's one of those things that like when you find yourself in great chaos, turmoil, pain, difficulty with other people, like it's one of those things where, one, it's time to go to God in prayer and ask him about what's going on. Uh, but then also like asking the Lord to work in us and through us for his goodwill to be done. Not just what we want to see done, but, but actually sometimes I think the best thing you and I can do is just simply ask God, what are you doing? Do I need to yield to your will in my life in this moment? Maybe even yield to the other person who I disagree with. Is this a moment to stand up and stand my ground? But don't just assume that you know that you're on the right side. I had to ask those questions myself recently. And since you and I are both spiritual beings, it could be a person. It could be the demonic. It could be you trying to outmaneuver God and you didn't even realize that you're kicking against the goad. And so I just want to invite you in a moment when we have the prayer team come up, it might be a time to just simply come and get some prayer and ask God what he's up to, what he's doing in the world, and ask that your heart and mind would come into line with his, that you would know and do his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That might be the spiritual way to address the spiritual warfare in this moment. It might be that you're just going to go through a really difficult time. And so then you need him to strengthen you, to to shore you up with, you know, the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, to prepare your feet with the gospel of peace. It might be that time that you may be getting ready to go through battle. And either way, whether you need to yield or you need to do battle, uh, let me encourage you to seek the Lord and to seek his strength and to seek his direction in this time. Don't just assume. Secondly, if you're here and, uh, you know, maybe through some things uh, uh, you recognize that you are out of step with the Lord and maybe you're explaining away evil because of the kindness of God, maybe you're rationalizing some bad behavior, uh, I want to invite you. If that's you, like, and you recognize that you're doing that, here's the way you handle it. Don't be religious, (laughs) okay? Don't be religious. Uh, Yield. Just ask God to forgive you, but let me encourage you. Maybe you need to come up and like confess that to somebody else and talk with them and get them to pray with you uh, to, to be able to, you just need to say it out loud. Sometimes that's the only thing that will break it off when it's working deep in your heart and you can't let go of it. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe it is something financially or whatever else, and there is a cost with backing away and yielding to God and, uh, and you can keep rationalizing, keep rationalizing, and you'll end up someplace you don't want to be. So let me invite you, if that's where you're, if you're wrestling with that, like come up and talk to somebody, have them pray with you, break that stuff off of you right now. You know, just repent, and then like move on to the next thing. Don't wallow in it. You know, it's, you know you're not a pig, don't wallow in the mud, okay? Let it go. Oh, Are you a voice for the Lord? Amid your own personal trials and circumstances, with or without signs, has the Lord given you an opportunity to be a voice 
in the wilderness of someone else's life. And excuses are not limited to signs and wonders. I, you know, I've heard all kinds of why, reasons why people don't share their faith. Maybe it's fear, maybe it's relational, whatever else. But I want to encourage you to obey the gospel and go and make disciples. Like, don't let time and everything else squeeze out faithfulness to God. And I know some have really real challenges. I'm not dismissing your challenges. I'm just telling you, your obedience is better than the sacrifice. So, better than the fat of rams. And I, I want to encourage you to do that. And then ultimately, if you're uncertain about your relationship with God, you know, if, if uh, like through all of this, you've, it's just making you ask more questions, uh, maybe uh, through some events or whatever in your life, you came this morning, maybe you're even here because you're asking those questions like, do I have a relationship with God? I mean, I, I, maybe I grew up going to church or whatever, but uh, you, you, just, you just find yourself in a place of uncertainty. Uh, when our prayer team members come up, I want to invite you, just why don't you come up and talk with somebody and let them pray with you. Uh, maybe it's that, you know, you're, you're stuck. You've just kind of, as a baby Christian, you've made some declarative statements, but you've never followed through in obedience. Uh, uh, you know, maybe uh, it, it's at the point in time where, you know, you just, you kind of hit the barrier and some simple obedience, getting baptized, following through, asking the Lord into the direction of your life. All those like basics of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, are, you just haven't been following through on. You're just kind of like banking on a prayer. And, uh, and that's not really Christianity. That's just praying a prayer. I want to invite you to like walk through the door. So let me invite you. Prayer time here. You got questions? If you're afar off from God, you're close to God, maybe you're a baby Christian, uh, maybe you've been a Christian a long time but never grown in your faith, like take some time and, and pray with one of these folks. Ask them some questions. Let them uh, help you with getting some direction this morning. All right, let's go ahead. Prayer team, go ahead and come on up and let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for this time together that we've been able to worship you and uh, to uh, gather together around your word we pray that through this instruction, through our time together, that uh, we have taken some greater steps uh, toward intimacy, toward experiencing your presence, to hearing your voice. And yet, Lord, we recognize uh, that there is nothing that can substitute for our own intimate walk with you, hearing your voice, spending time in your presence. And so I pray, Father, for everyone here that not only in this moment of prayer together, of worship together, maybe even ministering together, that we would go from this place filled with your presence, ready not only to speak a good word for Jesus, but to live in such a way that we could say together with Jesus, you have seen the works that I have done You've seen what God is doing in my life, and I invite you to see and taste for yourself that God is good. Use us to be vessels of your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope to see you next Sunday. God bless. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.